Let us turn in God's Word this evening to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. Continue our series through the armor that God gives us. This evening we will consider the shield of faith given in verse 16. Let's read first of all the chapter. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, The same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. That's where we read God's holy and an errant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of the Holy Scriptures. The text that we consider this evening is verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is on this Christmas Day that we are privileged to celebrate Emmanuel. And even the children know what Emmanuel means. God with us. We noted this morning how frightening that is to have Emmanuel in our presence. For God is a holy God and a consuming fire. And anyone who comes into the presence of a holy God himself being unholy will certainly be consumed by the justice of God. But on the other hand, is it not of greatest comfort to us in Jesus Christ to know that God is near to us when we have the confidence that God is not angry with me that God is not standing here as a tyrannical ruler ready to destroy me for my offenses But when we know that God, through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, has redeemed us and has covered in God's sight all of our sins, then how amazing it is that Emmanuel, God with us, came to this earth. Emmanuel, is our shield. The shield of faith that God gives to His church cannot be understood apart from Jesus. Jesus is the King Sovereign who protects His church. Jesus is the One who knows how the devil seeks to send forth fiery darts of temptation into the hearts of God's people. And Jesus is the one who quenches those fiery darts. Let's consider this evening the shield of faith. First we'll see our need for it, looking the concluding phrase, the fiery darts of the wicked. Second, we'll see God's gift to us. Look at the shield of faith. And then third, we'll see the power 
that this shield has. The shield of faith, our need of it, God's gift to us, and then the power it has. We need protection, do we not? It's only the ignorant or the proud or the vain individual who would claim he does not need protection. We need protection because according to this verse, there are flaming arrows sent out wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Fiery darts or flaming arrows fly through the air, penetrate the flesh, the intended object, wound, injure the individual who is hit, and start a fire. That's the power of these fiery darts. When the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of darts or arrows, we must not confuse these arrows with great spears that would at times be used in occasions of combat during biblical history. There were at times the situations where soldiers would catapult these large spears upon the enemy. They would do so oftentimes from a high point, a vantage point, on top perhaps of a wall of a city. And then if the enemy was approaching, those who were defending that city would catapult these large spears intended to go out and even could be spears that were on fire with the hope that these spears would land at least somewhere in the proximity of the soldiers and start this great fire, which would then prevent the soldiers from advancing toward the city and surrounding and capturing the city. The word used in the text here is not a reference to those great, even burning spears. Or rather, the word used in the text here is that of a dart or an arrow. And so the idea here is that somebody has his bow and his arrow. He pulls back the bow and he selects his specific target. He's not just aiming generally at a large mass of people, but he aims specifically at a target And then he releases that arrow aimed directly toward one individual. The tip of this arrow would be covered with cotton and with pitch. Before the soldier would release this arrow, he would start that tip of the arrow on fire. Release the arrow... And then that arrow would go forth, and if it went according to plan, hit its target, penetrate the flesh of the object, and then burn from the inside out. 
It would burn away at the inside of the flesh. That's the idea here of fiery darts. We take the time to understand what this means because as we understand character of fiery darts, it helps us to learn about the wiles or methods of the devil. There are a few points of comparison that can be made between how the devil works and how these fiery darts go forth. First of all, observe with me how quickly and how unexpectedly fly the arrows of temptation. The soldier on the soldier field would not be able to hear the arrow once the arrow was released and coming toward him, for the arrow would fly silently through the air. The soldier on the battlefield might not even be able to see the arrow. It could be that the enemy who had released the arrow against him had hidden himself from view, and so that this arrow would then come, as it were, out of nowhere. Even if the soldier had been able to see the arrow coming toward him, once the arrow is released, it flies at such a fast rate that human reflexes cannot move fast enough to respond and get out of the way of the arrow. If the soldier on the battlefield would be defended from that arrow, it was necessary that there already be a shield in place before the arrow even was released. Just as arrows fly silently, quickly, and unexpectedly, so come the arrows of temptation from the wicked one. It's not as if we go out looking for temptations. Temptations come to us. Eve, in the Garden of Eden, did not go out of her way searching for the devil. The devil came slithering silently, unexpectedly. Well, not slithering. He wasn't slithering yet. He would slither. But he came walking silently, unexpectedly to Eve in the garden. Joseph, when he was down in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. Joseph did not go out of his way to find Mrs. Potiphar. She found him and cast the arrows of seduction upon him. 
how quickly and how unexpectedly temptations can come in our life. We might think that we are at a strong point spiritually, at a place where we feel very close to the Lord and are confident of His nearness to us, and then suddenly there comes that temptation in our lives and it throws us off. All one has to do is browse on the internet. And you might be looking for the most wholesome of content of the internet, but there pops up that advertisement on the side of the page with the scantily clad woman. How quickly, how suddenly, how unexpectedly come the arrows of temptation. The second thing that we can observe from these arrows that the devil sends forth is how they penetrate. How they penetrate even to the inside of the Christian, to the heart and to the mind of the child of God. These arrows described by Paul in this verse are set aflame. And so just as that burning tip of the arrow penetrates the flesh and then destroys the flesh from the inside out, so it is that the wicked one, the devil, sends forth arrows that come from without. They come from outside of man, but they enter, they penetrate into the heart and the mind of man. Consider Eve as Eve looked at the fruit that the devil presented her in the garden. The devil held forth that fruit and Eve saw, according to Genesis 3, verse 6, that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She saw with her eyes that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was physically good fruit. And when she saw that with her eyes, her mind started to covet and lust after that fruit. The devil had the same goal in tempting Joseph with Mrs. Potiphar. The devil would have wanted Joseph to have looked upon the woman and to see that she was outwardly beautiful, and then to have Joseph permit his mind to start racing and thinking about possibilities, gross possibilities, with that woman. Perhaps all that Mrs. Potiphar did at first was cast a look on Joseph. Before she uttered a single word, all she did was let her gaze linger on him. Gave him a seductive glance. And Joseph would have been tempted in his heart and in his mind to contemplate what was the meaning of that. Is she suggesting something here? 
Always the goal of the devil is to grab a hold of your heart and of your mind. He works from the inside out. He knows that if he can control your heart, he will control your tongue. He will control your whole body. And so he sends forth arrows that pierce even to our hearts, intending to get our minds racing and thinking, entertaining the possibility of acting on that temptation. You would have our minds be filled with anxious concerns, would have our minds be filled with doubts regarding the future, would have our minds run over and over about all of the possibilities of things that could go wrong, doubting God's care and provision of all. And then finally, observe with me how these arrows are directed specifically to you and to me. The the archer draws back his arrow. He takes careful aim at a specific target and then he releases the arrow. How specific and how accurate is the devil as he places certain temptations before us? It's especially with regard to the timing of temptations and the location of temptations that the devil shows how cunning are his methods. Consider Eve. When what was the timing of when the devil came to Eve in the garden? He did not come to Eve at a moment when she was right next to her husband, and her husband could stand up and defend her, or at the very least, she and her husband could talk together about this as healthy married couples do, but instead the devil selected a time to tempt Eve to fall into sin when there was at least some measure of distance between Eve and her husband. Consider Joseph. When did the devil come and tempt Joseph with Mrs. Potiphar? He did so at a time when Joseph was alone far removed from his family, which is, to put it in New Testament terms, to say he was far removed from the church. No one else in the church would know about it. Nobody would have to know about it. It was a sin that had Joseph wanted to commit it, he could have committed it without his family having the slightest inkling about it. How wise the devil is as he singles out people 
at certain times with these flaming arrows. The devil has a great number of resources available to him in this warfare. Recall verse 12. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The devil is a seasoned military general who knows how to employ his forces at the right time when this or that particular member is the most vulnerable. When are you most susceptible to the temptations of the devil? That's the moment that He sends forth the fiery dart. Is it when you're successful? Then the devil will wait until that moment when you enjoy a measure of success. And then he will tempt that man to become proud of what he has done. Is it when you're tired? When you're feeling overwhelmed, then the devil will wait until the Christian wife is feeling overwhelmed with the responsibilities of the home, and at that moment, send forth the dart of bitterness and resentment for the place that she has. He sends forth arrows not just in mass generally, but specifically intended toward a target. Having considered, beloved, the heavy and sobering thoughts of the devil's fiery darts, We need the assurance from God's Word that He will and does protect us. He gives unto us the gift of faith, which according to this verse, is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. This is a shield of faith, We return now to the times when the Roman Empire was at its power and greatest power, and they were using shields. The shield spoken of here in this text is not to be understood as a circular, smaller circular shield, but instead the shield spoken of here would be a rectangular shape. Approximately four feet tall. The shield that the Roman soldiers would use would go from about the height of their knees, maybe a little bit below their knees, up to about the height of their eyes. It would be shaped in somewhat of a a tubular fashion, a half circle. It would have a curve to it 
so that if the soldier would pull this shield close to him, it would not only protect him on the front, but it would also protect him from attacks and arrows on the sides. It's noteworthy how the soldiers would use these shields collectively. There would be a a group of soldiers going forth into battle, and what the soldiers would do is they would huddle together as tightly as possible. They would be standing in rows as they prepared to enter the battlefield. The soldiers in the very front row would all hold these shields vertically in front of them. And they're standing shoulder to shoulder right next to each other. So from the front, looking at the soldiers, all you would see is this row of shields. Then, in the second, third, fourth, and subsequent rows of soldiers behind the front row, what the soldiers would do is they would pick these shields up and raise them over their heads, having the shields laying down horizontally. And so then, if one were to look from on top, have an eagle's eye view of these soldiers as they're going into battle, all you would see is a row of shield after shield after shield. And so you get this picture here of the soldiers who are totally protected from the arrows of the enemy. If the enemy tried to shoot an arrow straight on, the front row of soldiers would deflect the arrows off. And if the enemy tried to shoot an an arrow at an angle and have it fall in on the company of soldiers, the soldiers that had their shields up over their heads would likewise deflect those arrows. That's the idea here of the shield. Now, what is spiritually the shield that God gives His church? It's faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Faith is the bond that unites us unto Jesus Christ. Faith is that union that we have with our blessed Lord and Savior whereby we embrace Jesus Christ, whereby we rest in Jesus Christ, and whereby we are given the confidence that we are righteous as we stand before God. But then the question is, in what sense does the Apostle Paul speak of faith here? The Scriptures speak of faith in two different senses. You can use faith in in an objective sense, And you can use faith in a subjective sense. Objectively, faith is the body of knowledge, the truths that God has imparted unto His church. That's that's faith. Jude verse 3 speaks of objective faith in this sense as the truth that God has imparted unto us. Jude 3, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints.
saints. The faith that was delivered unto the saints is a reference to the instruction that came through Paul and James and Peter and the other apostles as God delivered those truths unto His early New Testament church. That's briefly objective faith. But then on the other hand, there's subjective faith. And subjective faith is the act of trusting in those truths, believing those truths. So which is it? It's both, is it not? The shield of faith that God gives us is both objectively the truths of His Word and subjectively trusting His Word. The two go hand in hand. First, we can consider the truth that faith, objective faith, is the truth that God gives us in His Word. Truth is a fortress that surrounds God's church. Truth is the cornerstone upon which God's church is built up. This is the protection that God has given to His church. The Scriptures. Do you love and and, and believe that this Word is sufficient to protect you from temptation? God as the sovereign God could hypothetically have made use of any means that He wanted to shield His church from the devil. He could have used the cunning of man. He could have used mighty armies and horses and chariots to protect His church. But God is pleased to use truth. That's why Eve fell. She did not stand by the truth of God's Word. Jesus, on the other hand, withstood temptations because He made use of truth. The devil came and tempted him three times over, and every time Jesus responded, it is written. A reference to the truths of the Word. Especially this truth is our shield, the Gospel truth. The gospel truth that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners from their sin. The gospel truth that I am redeemed with the blood of the Lamb and that because of His finished work, I am righteous in God's sight. That's our shield. That's our barrier that protects us from the wicked one. How vulnerable and exposed we are when we do not have the confidence that we are the children of God. 
But as God gives us to know the truths contained in His Word, God shields and protects us. And then as well, subjective faith, that is, trusting in God's Word is our shield. You see, the body of truth that God has given unto His church does nothing to protect the church unless that truth lives in the hearts of the members of that church. It's possible that one could memorize great sections of Scripture. It's possible that one can be able to articulate reformed truths. Truths about justification by faith alone. Truths about the greatness and the transcendence of God. Truths about imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness unto us. One might be able to understand process, know, and even speak fluently about those truths, but do those truths live within one's heart and one's soul? It's only as those truths are pressed by the Holy Spirit from our mind into our heart that then those truths are used by God to protect us from the fiery darts of the devil. Faith takes for truth what God has revealed in His holy Scriptures. Faith is different from sight. Faith does not depend on sight. We talked earlier about the fact that these arrows can fly silently and unexpectedly so that we cannot even see these arrows as they're coming to us. But beloved, here's our assurance. We don't need to see the arrows. Because faith, not sight, faith is our shield. Faith protects us from temptations that we are not even aware of. Thomas, in a moment of weakness of faith, doubted that his Lord and Savior was resurrected and would not believe until he saw with his own eyes the holes in the hands and feet of his Savior. May God grant unto us the ability to believe even when we cannot see faith. It's a confidence that arises not out of ignorance, but out of a knowledge of God's Word. You see, these two go hand in hand, do they not? The objective reality of faith, truth, and subjectively, our assurance of truth. The more that we study and pray over and meditate upon truth, the more that truth lives within our minds, the more God is pleased to give unto us the confidence that this Word is true and that it can be depended upon. 
Does anyone doubt the power of the Word? Does any question the efficacy of the Word to shield one from the darts of the devil? If one is doubting, do not dismiss the Scriptures as being powerless. Return to the Word. Make use of the means of grace. Persist in them. And trust that God will give a season of richer grace. power that this shield has is the power to quench. Above all, take in the shield of faith whereby ye shall be able, you are able, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Quench means extinguish. It's what a fireman does as he goes to fight a fire. He quenches, extinguishes the fire by dousing it with water or some other chemical. Somewhat unexpected, is it not? To say that a shield quenches these flaming arrows? Would we not normally say that the shield would deflect the flaming arrows? That the arrows would go forth, that they would hit this hard shield and ricochet off, and in that way protect the soldier. That's that's almost what we would expect. But the Scriptures don't say that. It says quench. It extinguishes the arrows. The idea is this, beloved, that God here in His Word goes beyond what a natural shield in a combat situation would be capable of doing. The figure falls short of the reality. The figure is a shield used in warfare. And yes, it's true that the shield used in warfare does not have the power to extinguish the flaming arrow. It simply deflects the flaming arrow. But the reality is faith. And faith goes beyond what the figure is capable of doing. God gives unto faith not only the ability to deflect the arrow... But God has granted unto faith this power. Faith has the power to quench the flaming arrows of the devil. The idea is this, that faith grabs a hold of those arrows, snatches them out of mid-air, douses the flaming arrow so that it no longer is burning, breaks that arrow into pieces, and then casts that now powerless harmless arrow down on the ground and tramples that arrow underfoot. That's the idea here, beloved, of the power of faith. It extinguishes, quenches the fiery darts. And how complete is this victory? Notice that little word, all. 
wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. It's hard for us to grasp that, is it not? God gives unto us the power to resist every temptation that the devil sets before us. Due to the weakness of our faith, we doubt it. Due to besetting sins, which we fall into time and time again, we doubt whether we'll ever be able to resist that fiery dart which so easily finds its way into our hearts and into our minds, and we give in. How often are we not like Sarah, who when she heard the Word of God that she would conceive and bear a child in her old age, laughed at the Word of God. Of God. By nature, we would never believe it. All the fiery darts we are able to quench. It is only because of Emmanuel. God with us that we are able to quench these darts. It is only because God Himself condescends into this world, first through Jesus Christ, then through the poured out Spirit of God's Son, that we are able to take up this shield of faith and that we are able to use it effectively in Christian warfare. May it be true of you and me and all of God's people that we have walked by faith. Faith grants unto you enduring power so that you can make it to the finish line in the race that is set before you. Faith takes your and my eyes off of ourselves, and fixes our spiritual eyes on Jesus Christ. Faith, according to John, is the victory that overcometh the world. May God grant us that empowering, protecting, lively faith. Amen. Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee that Thy love toward us abounds day by day and moment by moment. Wilt Thou fill us with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, give to us wisdom and a spirit of discernment. May we be able to recognize and resist by Thy strength within us 
the wiles of the devil. Go forth as our shield in this week that is ahead of us. Pardon our sins, even those committed during the worship service. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.